This session is from the 2023 Shepherds 360 Church Leaders Conference. For more information, please visit shepherds360.org. We might as well get going. It's three o'clock. Time's wasting. Uh, my name is Hal Hayes. I have a ministry called Encouragement International. Uh, it's, I've been in ministry with the organization for 30 years. I founded it 30 years ago. Uh, I went kicking and screaming over to the Slavic world with Walk Through the Bible Ministries. They asked me to represent them at a national conference over there. And so I went over and uh, I fell in love with Slavic ministry. I've got to tell you a very quick story, I hope. Uh, when I graduated seminary, I said, God, I'll be happy to minister anywhere in the world for you as long as it's an English-speaking country. And uh, I was thinking Australia, Canada, New Zealand, the United States, uh, someplace where there is a, uh, a nice English language I don't have to learn something foreign. And uh, God put me into Russia. Uh, about 14 years after I graduated from seminary and I've been over there ministering. I have a domestic-based ministry. I travel five months out of the year, so I'm back and forth between here and there. I generally spend three to four weeks at a time overseas. Uh, the ministry has expanded over the, three, uh, the 30 years that I've been there. Uh, we have now four people within the ministry. We sent out a missionary, a single female, over to Belarus. She's in Belarus right now and ministering over there. And one of the issues that she has to deal with is females in a bad relationship, a marriage relationship. And so uh, we've done uh, quite a few marriage seminars over the years over there. Uh, the information I'm going to share with you about the Slavic culture and the Slavic perspective on marriage really comes from personal experience as well as talking to uh, different pastors over there and getting some uh, information from them. So I'm not going to take you directly to the cultural understanding because I think we need to understand what the biblical foundation is. And even before that, I just want to uh, let you know that I am married. I do have four children. My wife and I uh, uh, have raised four. They range in age from 43 down to 33, which means I also have grandchildren. I've got 14 of them right now. Three of those grandchildren are right here in uh, the Raleigh area, which is why I like coming to Shepherd's Theological uh, Seminary and the conference that's taking place here because it gives me an opportunity to uh, play with those kids and meet with them and also see my son and his, uh, his wife. So happily married for the 47 years that we've been together and known each other. She's ministered with me overseas. She speaks to women on marriage, uh, and we find the principles that we share are many times um, listened to, but not applied because the cultural difference uh, and the practical problems that are associated with the principles that we teach are sometimes they're unable to overcome. Now, I have to hire uh, a translator who's a part of my ministry in order to communicate my thoughts because the Russian language is uh, the language of heaven. Uh, it takes an eternity to learn. And uh, so uh, I haven't learned that language. I have enough to get into trouble if I say a few things. And so I don't even try, especially the religious language is so different than uh, ordinary language that even the people in Russia have a tar hard time, difficult time with understanding the theological principles that are in there. But uh, as we look at uh, marriage 
from a biblical standpoint and a cultural standpoint, I'm, I'm, I want to start with what's going on in Genesis, because if we have a better understanding of what's going on there, then we can minister not only in the Slavic world, but here in the United States as well. And so really, as I put this together, uh, I was looking at the problems that are associated with uh, Slavic cultural marriages, and I was realizing that really uh, they're not any different than American, but you see them in a different flavor. You see them in a different perspective. And so if we can understand what God wants from the scriptures and then look at the difficulties that they have over in the Slavic world, and then you come back and look at what's going on here in the United States, you're going to see some complementary uh, ideas, but you're going to see different ways of approaching the problem, not only here, but overseas if you minister in the Slavic culture. As we establish things, though, we need to realize, we need to just refresh our memories, so to speak, and say that God, marriage is God's idea. Uh, it wasn't developed over time by man to order the society. And I think that if we look at sociologists today, and it has been this way for uh, over 50 or 60 years, that marriage uh, is not something that's divine. It was just something that is good for society. And we're seeing that even now that society doesn't think marriage is good anymore, that marriage is something that we need to just throw out the window and we need to just have open relationships. And, oh, man, what a tragedy to, to listen to uh, the story about Will Smith and his wife, Jada Pinkett Smith, and how they have an open marriage, not because Will wants an open marriage, but because Jada Pinkett Smith wants an open marriage. And they don't even live together. They just have the marriage and they have some kids by that marriage, but they're living in a way that uh, dishonors each other. And Jada doesn't mind embarrassing and um, dishonoring Will at all. In fact, you'll probably remember a couple of years ago at the Oscars, Will took offense at a comment that was made about his marriage. And so he went up and made a public, public spectacle of himself more embarrassed himself than anything else. And it was interesting to me and to others that his wife did not come to his aid to defend his uh, attempt to preserve the honor of the relationship. She left him out there in the cold, and I think he's still suffering from that embarrassment today. But uh, as we look at, at marriage, it's God's idea. And uh, it was his idea because it does develop a well-ordered society, but it's his idea, and this is the plan, and this is the standard that he wants between a man and a woman as they enter into a marriage relationship for family purposes. We also need to see, and this is something that uh, I've, I've thought more and more about over the years, every marriage is sovereignly arranged. And uh, that's not true just of Christian marriages. I think that's true of all marriages. Uh, any marriage outside of Christ or in Christ is a divinely arranged marriage. It's not orchestrated by man to fulfill personal interests. It's all designed for the glory of God. And I think that's got to be true, especially if you have non-believing parents who have children who become Christians and they have to look back on their own parents and see they're non-believers. But there was something about that relationship that was good and transmitted onto those kids as they became believers that they can look back and say there are certain things that we can model in what we saw and what mom and dad did. And I think that's true in my own life and my wife's life because we are first generation Christians. Oh, I grew up in a Christian home. I went to a mainline denominational church, but we didn't see biblical principles being modeled in an overt manner. 
there were some subtle things that were coming through that were transmitted through that came along to me, but they were reinforced more by what the scripture had to teach. And we were influenced more by what God had to say than what we saw in the marriages of our parents. And in fact, I was blessed with parents who stayed married their entire life before uh, my mom went to be with the Lord three years ago. But my wife's parents divorced when she was 16. And that had a scarring effect on all four children in the marriage at that time. Lasting effects even into today. And then finally, uh, marriage is an unbroken commitment. I think we need to have these foundational thoughts that are going on. Uh, It's not to be abandoned for any reason. And I think that's very clear. We all know Malachi 2.16, God hates divorce. And we need to keep that in mind. But as I was thinking even about putting this seminar together, I was thinking when we've taught and traditionally thought about marriage, we generally go to the New Testament as our starting place. We think, let's look at the teaching of Paul. Let's look at the teaching of of Jesus and let's see what they have to say about marriage. And then we're going to model everything about what they say in the New Testament, because that is that New Testament is our document for how to live the Christian life, how to live to the glory of God. Actually, I think if we thought about it hard enough, we'd go back to Genesis and we say that's got to be the foundation for our understanding. And that's where I want to take us. I want us to go back there. We're going to start out in Genesis 1. We're going to do a quick overview of what's happening there. We're going to be reading some scriptures on occasion uh, in order to get the general flow of thought. But when we look at Genesis chapter 1, we need to realize there's a distinction between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Genesis 1 is a general description of God's creative work. And then when we get into Genesis 2, it's God's specific description of one particular day in that creation week. We need to keep that in mind as we go through because many times people in the world, those in liberal Christianity, sometimes those in conservative Christianity, want to confuse what's going on in Genesis 2 and try and make it a differentiation in what happened in Genesis 1. So let's get the overview of Genesis chapter 1 very first. And it says at the beginning, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then if we go down through the next 23 verses, we see what happened on day one, day two, day three, day four, day five. I don't need to go through that because that's not important for our discussion on the issue of marriage. But when we get to Genesis 1, 24 through 27, that is going to perk our interest when we talk about marriage, because it says on day six, that God is going to create man. And when we look at what it says in verse 27, he created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It's interesting that he starts out talking about a singular, and then he goes to a plural. And that's kind of curious without explanation. And it's really good that we have Genesis 2, because then we get to clarify the linguistic difference there in that one verse, going from a singular to a plural. And as we see what goes on and then in Genesis 2, we can come back to this verse and we can see, oh, okay, God did create a man and not in a, uh, uh, a generic term, but in a very gender specific term, a male, because that word in the Hebrew can mean either someone who is uh, gender specific or it can refer to mankind in general. And so how are we going to determine the meaning of that word? Well, I think it's kind of defined already, uh, at least the elements are introduced to us at verse 27, because we have a singular usage here, which is going to point to a male understanding, 
But then he goes to a plural, which is going to design or give us the idea of that generic understanding. Okay, so then we get into Genesis chapter 2. And now we're going to look at God's specific description of creation on day 6. And it says in verse 4, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in that day, that Yahweh God made earth and heaven. And so he creates the heaven and an earth, just like he says in Genesis 1.1. And then we come to verse 5 and 6, and we see that there was no man to cultivate the earth. So God is already introducing the idea that he's going to do something very specific, but that specific is not there. It says there wasn't any shrub in the field, etc., and there was a mist that, uh, that used to rise up from the earth, but there was no man in verse 5 to cultivate this garden that God has created. And that leads us to verse 7 then. God is going to create a man to cultivate the garden. Then the Lord God, or Yahweh God, formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now we have a male at this point created, a singular individual that's put into this garden, and that becomes evident with the rest of the story. Because that's how we're going to decide at this point that there is a singular individual, not two companions that are working together. And in verse 15, it says, Yahweh God took the man, put him in the garden to cultivate it and to keep it. And so he's given in his creation responsibility to care for something that God has put on this earth. And then in verse 16 and 17... <laughs> You may think that this is redundant, but there is a point to coming through to all of this. In verse 16 and 17, it says, Yahweh God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden, you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you may not eat for on that day you eat from it. It will sure you will surely die. Now, who's this command given to not to mankind in general? It's only given to an individual, the male who was created. He's given the responsibility not only of cultivating the area, but maintaining order and rule within the garden. And at this point, there's only one rule out there, and that is don't eat from one tree. And by the way, God says to Adam or the man, I'm going to take you and show you the tree so that you have a visual as well as a verbal understanding of what your restrictions are going to be. And so he knows what's going on. And he's the one that is going to be responsible then not only to care for the garden, but to transmit the rule of God onto anyone else who might venture into the garden. It's his responsibility. So then we go on in Genesis chapter 2. We come to verse 18, and it says, Yahweh God said, it's not for the man. Again, look at that, the singular, the specific. It's just one male individual to be alone. I'm going to make for him a helper suitable for him. So he's saying that singleness is not a good idea, basically. He's saying, I've got put man in the garden and I've given him responsibility, but it's not good for him to take care of this all by himself. And so in verse 19 and 20, it says that out of the ground, Yahweh God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. That's pretty interesting, specific instructions given to Adam. You've got the responsibility not only to care for my garden, but you need to name every one of the animals. Whatever you want to name it, it's going to stick. Now, I don't think that there was so much independence on Adam's part that he was thinking this up on his own. I think God was initiating the thought process that ultimately resulted in the naming of the animals. But it goes on in verse 20 to say, And the man gave names to all the cattle and the birds of the sky and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not one found a helper suitable for him. 
God's plan was to show Adam his uh, unique singleness and to show him and give him the idea that he's different than the rest of God's creation. I think he looked at all the animals and he noticed that each one of those animals looked alike, but there was certain parts that looked a little different. And he's thinking about this the whole time. And one part of that animal looked kind of like him, but where was his compliment? There wasn't that compliment out there for him. And so he's going on and he's thinking this whole time. He doesn't know that he's really alone, but he is being introduced to the idea that he's singular at this point. And God is going to solve the problem in verse 22. Yahweh God fashioned into the woman uh, the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. So God's solution is to take a part of Adam, a rib, fashion a woman, and then give her as a gift to Adam. What's interesting is Adam's response in verse 23, because he recognizes the difference. Takes one look at a woman, and he recognizes that does not look like me except in the face. You know, we both have two eyes in the same place, a mouth and a nose. But when we start going below the chin, it looks a little different than what I'm doing. And so here's his ecstatic response in the Hebrew. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. He's very excited about the prospect of having a companion, one that doesn't look like him, but one that is exciting to him. And I think that was probably the experience of every man in the room who was married at the time of his marriage. He was excited to have a compliment that was a little different than him, but who was going to share life with him. I know I was, and I continue to be excited and ecstatic about the partner that God has given to me in the same way that Adam was ecstatic for his wife, Eve. The problem is... Modern man doesn't look ecstatically at his partner for very long. He gets a little tired of the situation. And there's a lot of difficulties that are associated with that that contribute to that problem. The modern age is just filled with those alternatives out there that bombard uh, the airwaves. Used to be just the magazines that would keep a man from a singular identity that would look only at his spouse. And you know what's really sad today? is that now, when you look at the problem with online porn, it's not a male problem. It's a female problem as well. And we're, I'm learning more and more that the younger females are just as addicted and into porn as the males are. It's no longer a big difference anymore. So as pastors and as people who are trying to uphold God's value of marriage, we have an even more difficult problem. It was only 50% of the problem before because the man was the issue. Now we've got a 100% problem. We've got to deal with a woman who is having the same difficulty as a man when it comes to dealing with the images that are out there and the dissatisfaction that's going on in a marriage relationship. And then in verse 24, and this is important, God is going to define their relationship and he's going to define all relationships going forward. He says, for this cause, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Their identity is supposed to be with each other. They can look at themselves as singular, but they have to look at their spouse as part of that singularity now. It's one plus one or equals one. It's not one plus one equals two. It's the two become one. And in God's perspective, then marriage is that standard by which a man and a woman are going to come together and they're going to complement each other. 
All right. So the conclusion then when we look at what is going on in the specific creative day of Genesis 2 is that God's concept of marriage is primarily complementarian and not egalitarian. And I'm going to develop that just a little bit more. But at this point, who was created first, Adam or Eve? It was Adam. And he was singular. And God said, it's not good for you to be alone. I'm going to make a helper for you, a suitable helper for you. And it's out of Adam that Eve or woman is going to be created. And she is given as a complement to the man. And this is where we get this idea of a complementarian idea of marriage. If we are going to say that marriages are egalitarian, we can't start in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. We have to go to the New Testament and we have to look at a different model and then impose this other model into a complementary understanding, egalitarian understanding of what's going on in Genesis 1 and 2. So I'm letting the cat out of the bag that I'm not an egalitarian when it comes to discussing marriage. I'm a complementarian only because of what the model is and the example is that's given in Genesis chapter 2. All right, it's kind of interesting, though, (coughs) to note that this egalitarian viewpoint was really espoused back in the 1600s, in the 1700s, by a man named Matthew Henry. You've heard of Matthew Henry in his commentaries. It's interesting that when he talks about Genesis 2, here's the quote that he gave. He said, the woman was made out of a rib or of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon him, but out of his side to be equal with him. And not only that, uh, but under his arm to be protected and near his heart to be loved. Boy, I, I don't know about you, but when I was in seminary, I saw that and I thought that's really a good statement. And I've incorporated that into many of the marriages that I've performed. But as I think about it now, you know, that was a mistake because he really was uh, promoting and introducing the idea of an egalitarian role in marriage. But this thought was not original to Matthew Henry. It really came from a Jewish philosopher about a hundred years before him. And in his commentary and in his philosophical discussion on Genesis 2, he said, Chava, which is the Hebrew name for Eve, was not created from Adam's foot so that he would not consider her lowly, a lowly maidservant, nor from his head so that he would lord it over him. She would over, lord it over him. Rather, she was created from his side so that she would be equal to him. Now, I've used different colors in here to highlight something for you. If you look at what Matthew Henry says in red, he's stolen that from uh, Isaac over here because you see that same idea in red. And you see that statement in brown? Well, he stole that from Isaac as well because you see Isaac's statement in brown. And then you see that idea in blue? That's from Isaac as well. But you notice one thing in there. There's two extra colors. Uh, Matthew Henry added two other thoughts to what Isaac could put down. But the idea is the same in each one. And I kind of like the idea because I think we need to have this idea of equality uh, that goes on between a man and a woman because a man many times becomes chauvinistic, even in church circles. And he doesn't realize that the complementary creation of a woman really puts her in some ways equal with him. But when it comes to marriage, it's not an equality thing as much as a complementary thing. She is to help him and he is to be the leader and he's to take all the responsibility and he's got uh, a heavier set of responsibilities when it comes to overseeing and caring for the family. All right. So when we talk about a successful marriage, then 
if we look at what I've just said in the opening statements about those three foundational thoughts and then looking at what's going on in Genesis 1 and 2, we see that a successful marriage is committed to fulfilling God's ordained roles. What are God's ordained roles? Well, this for that, we can see more specificity in what it says in Ephesians chapter 5, because Paul gives us a very detailed understanding of the role relationship between a husband and a wife. Now, when we look at what's going on in, in Ephesians 5, he's really saying at the very end that uh, in verse 32, when he's describing marriage, the mystery, this mystery is great but I am speaking in reference to Christ and his church. In other words, he's given this illustration of a relationship in marriage between a husband and a wife to make a specific illustration that's going to be helpful to understand the relationship between Jesus Christ and his church. And what is that relationship between Christ and his church? Well, it's a downward arrow. He's the Lord and he's in charge. And in 23, uh, he's basically saying the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also the head of the church. So there's a, uh, there is a role relationship that exists between Christ and the church that is to be modeled in marriage. This is where we're beginning to see that marriage is not egalitarian, it's complementarian. Uh, if we want to talk about egalitarianism, then we talk about salvation, because when we look at 1 Peter 3, 7, we're going to see that in salvation, man and woman, husband, wife, black, white, Jew, non-Jew, now we have an egalitarian relationship. There is not one that is more important than the other, but we've got to make that distinction between what's going on in marriage and what's going on in salvation. Uh, in order to appreciate what's going on in a marriage relationship. But in, in 1 Peter 3, 7, Peter says, You husbands likewise live with your wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker vessel, since she is a woman, uh, since she is a woman, and grant her honor as a fellow heir of grace. There's the egalitarianism that exists in a salvation relationship between man and woman. Paul echoes the same thought in Galatians when he talks about there is no distinction between male and female, Jew, non-Jew, etc., etc. Egalitarianism is a part of the salvific model, but it's not a part of the marriage model. Because when we look at Ephesians 5, 24, it says that, but as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be subject to their husband in everything. There we go with that arrow pointing down again with the husband being the responsible party, the leader, the one who is taking the role uh, of, of guide and leader in the relationship. And the wife is to complement what he is doing. Doesn't mean that she doesn't speak up. It does mean, though, that in the very end, the final say has to be with the husband. And right now, it just so happens that even though I have ministry overseas and I'm on the road five months of the year into the Slavic world, I do have a domestic ministry back at my church. And there are three couples in a Bible study that I lead that need some marriage uh, counseling. And we've been working for four years on the wife to help her to understand what it means to be a submissive wife. But she feels like she still has the final say in things. It's the most frustrating experience that I've had in the three years that I've been dealing with her. But I am 
finally beginning to see a breakthrough and I'm beginning to see her change her way of thinking. But one interesting way that she demonstrates this is she says, yeah, okay. Uh, her husband says, I can't live in California anymore. I've got to get out of this state. They're in the entertainment industry. He puts a lot of music to uh, the background of movies. Uh, I hate to say this, uh, but uh, he's uh, well known for his music in Fast and Furious and all the sequels that are in there. I've, I think I've watched only five minutes of that. I can't take more than about 30 seconds, but I tried to endure five minutes of that, and I finally had to give up and move on. But he is feeling the pressure from his industry that he's not going to be able to stay doing what he's doing uh, because the pressure is to score for shows that are just so immoral that he wants nothing to do with it anymore. And so he wants to move out of state. And she says, you know what? I only want to live in California. And so she's forced the family to stay in California, even though he could be more productive outside of the state if she would just give in and let him do that. Trust God that his leadership would lead them to improve their relationship with each other and protect them and still keep her satisfied where they are. See, the model that we see in Ephesians 5 is that the husband should be the one that has the final say in things, not the wife. And she has been having the final say in their 12 years of marriage. And that's created a kind of friction because he wants to follow a biblical model. She, as a new believer over the last two years, is finally starting to catch on that maybe I need to back off a little bit and give him more of the role of a leader in order for me to be happier in the long run. All right, so we've got to be committed to fulfilling God's ordained role, which means the husband has to be in charge with the final say. Wife, go ahead, speak up, share what you think, give him the insights that he might need in order to make a good final decision. And then if he makes a bad decision and then later realizes it, don't say, I, I told you so. You know, uh, which is uh, something that uh, my wife doesn't mind nudging every once in a while to remind me of bad decisions I've made in the past. And I have to readily admit, yeah, those were bad decisions. You got to be humble all the way through. But let him make the mistake. Let him answer to God. Let him feel the heat from the spirit of God and not necessarily from you. All right. So that's our model. Now, it's kind of interesting. And I want to just back up for a second uh, because uh, we're going to talk about the sovereign arrangement of God in marriage. And uh, we don't see that as an overt statement in Genesis, do we? It's just kind of implied with the way that he put the, the scene together. He made man, and then he makes woman, and he says, okay, this is your one woman. It's kind of interesting to see that he didn't make, make another man for Adam to help him out with the physical, physical hardship. He made a woman to compliment her, but she came after the fact. It was him first, then she came along. So we see that he's sovereignly arranging for Eve to be his spouse. And he is ecstatic with the choice of God. Of course, there wasn't any other options at that point. So he was kind of limited in his choices out there. And that became a more difficult matter for man later on and especially today. But we need to remember that the model was the sovereign arrangement of God in marriage. And this is going to be complemented by what Jesus says in Matthew 19, verses 4 through 6. Now, I'm going to admit that this is not the main point of what Jesus is trying to say, but you're all familiar with what he says in verses 4 through 6. He's asked, is it lawful in verse 3 for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? So that's the context of what Jesus is having to respond to. And here's his answer. He says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Where does he get that quote? From Genesis 2, 24. 
And he says, for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. That's Genesis 2.24. But then Jesus is going to add to that. He says, consequently, and this is the lesson he wants us to learn when he quotes Genesis 2. He says, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Did you get the subtle hint in there? Every marriage is subtly arranged. God has put man and woman together in a singular marriage for them to enjoy for the entire time that they are together. It's really disturbing to see that we have a 50% divorce rate in our society. And it's all because we don't recognize that there is a permanent relationship that should be going on in the marriage relationship. So we got to start out not only with God being the, 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 the model or the one who designed the plan for marriage, but to recognize that every marriage is sovereignly arranged. We've got to be reemphasizing this in our counseling to those who come in f- to us and ask us to help them get ready for marriage. And then when we come to those who are starting to dissolve their relationships and they need some marital counseling, we need to remind them that God is not happy with this because he's sovereignly arranged your marriage. I think we've missed this. I know in my own marriage counseling that I experienced with uh, before I was married with my wife 47 years ago, we didn't get this kind of counsel from uh, the pastor. He didn't say that there was a sovereign arrangement going on. He just indicated that uh, he kind of hinted at the thought that once you get married, then that's going to be a permanent relationship. But I'm putting words in his mouth. Those are the thoughts that I'm walking away with. I think we need to emphasize once again when we're talking to our um, uh, people that we need to uh, let them know that this is a sovereignly arranged relationship. And the only way that you know that it's sovereignly arranged is to go through with the, uh, the marriage and to look back at the vows that you made at that point and to recognize that once you've made that, that vow and you've consummated that relationship, then that's a divinely, sovereignly arranged relationship that should not be split apart. If you run into those people that have said after a couple of years, you know what, I made a mistake. Didn't recognize personality, didn't recognize this. You know what, God knew. God knew exactly what kind of personality you had. He knew the personality of your spouse. He knew the conflicts that you were going to have. And so if you're in a trial, what are you supposed to do? Ask God to show you why you have this difficulty in your life. Ask him for wisdom. This is James 1. And we need to be going back to this perspective as we counsel those who are in crisis to uh, remember this is a sovereignly arranged relationship. God knew the problem that you two would have personality-wise. Now let's work it out because God wants you together. He hates divorce, and especially if you have kids, those kids should not have to suffer because you don't want to submit yourself to the plan of God. All right, so now let's look at some interesting relationships, and I'm going to go through this quickly. I want to provoke your thinking very quickly. If you look in Scripture and look at Isaiah, uh, at Genesis 24, this is the marriage of Isaac. And I'd read this, but I've spent too much time just talking in the preliminary stuff, so we've got to go through quickly. But remember in Genesis 24, Abraham is looking for a wife for his son Isaac. Okay, so Isaac's not looking for the wife. Abraham is. And so he sends his servant out on a search and he tells him very specifically to go up to Haran where his relatives are and to find a wife for his son from one of his relatives. And he finds Rebecca up there through sovereignly, divinely arranged plan. And he comes back with 
Rebekah and gives him to Isaac. And it's very interesting to look at that story. Because uh, when we look at marriages in our society, we're all big in, on hyping the ceremony, aren't we? Isaac saw Rebekah and said, who's that? The servant said, that's your wife. He took her down off the camel, went into the tent, consummated the marriage, and that was it. There was no ceremony, you know? Then they lived happily ever after after that. But look at what is going on. Look at the process. Abraham was directing, the servant was selecting, and Isaac was accepting. Okay, but God was the arranger behind the scenes. And I think it's important to remember that as we look at the relationships that are going on, there's a divine arrangement that is going on all the way through. We see a similar thing in the life of Jacob. God is behind the scenes as an initial arranger, but this time it's Isaac. Isaac this time says to Jacob, you know what? Your, your brother has disappointed us. Esau went and he married one of the girls around us, one of the Canaanites. Those are bad gals, but he did it anyway. We told him not to do it. He went ahead and did it on his own. We want you to go and get an acceptable wife. Go up to our relatives up there in Haran and find a wife. And so Jacob goes on there. He's going to be the selector, though, this time. It's not going to be a proxy. It's not going to be a servant. It's going to be Isaac directing Jacob, who is going to go view the situation, and he's going to select who he wants, right? Except he didn't get who he wanted, did he? First time around. Uh, Uncle Laban uh, did bait and switch and gave him an older sister and said, yeah, uh, you know, it's not our custom to marry off the younger before the older, but hey, such a deal. If you finish the bridal week, I'll give you the younger as uh, the one whom you really want. I'll give you that as your wife as well. Now we have problems that we have to deal with. How can one man have two women? And how can we uh, look at that as an example? Because Laban is giving both of his daughters away to one man and saying, you've got to care for them. But notice what he says later on. He is, he is departing uh, as he confronts Jacob when he has left. He says to Jacob, he says, you be careful. I don't want you taking any other wives beside my two girls. And if I find out that you've taken uh, any other wives beside my two girls, I'm coming after you. I'm going to cross this line of demarcation that we've established, but I'm going to hold you responsible for not being faithful to the marriage relationship and the marriage deal that I gave to you at the very beginning. Something about that commitment in there that we need to honor, even though it's a bad example. Now, the contrast of that is to look at Esau in Genesis 26. And you can look at these on your own. I don't have the time to go through this specifically. Esau, though, is going to go out there as the initial arranger he wants a wife. He doesn't want to go to Haran. He's not going to wait for direction from his parents. He just goes and he finds a girl. And he selects her, and then he pursues and he embraces her. It's his decision. This is more the model that I think society follows today, whether it's in America or over in the Slavic world. And we have another example in Samson when you look at Judges 14. He did the same thing. He's living under the law in uh, Israel, which says only marry another Jew, Right? But what does Samson do? He goes to the Philistines. But it was designed by God. And this is a clear statement of the sovereignty of God in the selection of a bride for whoever. Samson goes down there. He doesn't realize that he's being directed by God, but God is arranging this whole thing because he wanted to create some animus. He was using Samson in his sinfulness to create an opportunity for his glory by allowing him to select that Philistine wife. So Samson pursues, Samson embraces it's interesting to note that as I've studied the culture of biblical marriages, that initial romance was rare. 
in these marriages in the past that were arranged by the parents. Uh, but true love often developed between the two. So uh, we just keep this in mind. Now, uh, if marriages are to be an unbroken commitment, then we look at Matthew 5 and 6, 19, 5 and 6, where God is unhappy with um, divorce. And I just wanted to take us through a little bit to show you what was considered a marriage um, contract or relationship in the first century and even before that. There was a thing called betrothal, which was equivalent to engagement, but it really was equivalent to marriage back in the uh, uh, biblical times, not only in the Old Testament, but in the First Testament, uh, the, the New Testament as well. It was considered marriage because when you look at Genesis 29, 21 and Deuteronomy, I wish I could go through those. Look at those verses in Deuteronomy 22, 23 and 24 and even beyond that, because it's showing at that point uh, what sexual sin is, but the way it's described it describes the very last instance where if a betrothed woman uh, is taken to be, a, a, is used as a wife before they actually have the ceremony, that you have to keep that commitment that you've made to her in the betrothal period. So if there is, and by the way, if you look at uh, Deuteronomy 22, it's looking at the uh, law of violating somebody who is betrothed. So if a woman is betrothed, she was considered marriage. But if they haven't begun to live together uh, at that time and another man comes in and lies with her, either raping her or just saying, you know, let's get together, uh, there was a consequence uh, that was equivalent to having committed adultery. In other words, death was the final uh, sentence for somebody who violated a woman who was betrothed. If you were betrothed, but you came together with your betrothed, then that was considered, oh, okay, you've jumped the gun, and now you have to finish this out. You are related to each other for the rest of your life. So you've got this, this understanding that betrothal, and here's the point I'm trying to make, that betrothal was considered to be married marriage, even if you didn't come together at that time. There's a lot of other specific details in here I don't think are relevant to our, our understanding, but if we look at the ceremony, and this is somewhat relevant to what I want to say, there was a procession where the man went to the home of the woman, picked her up, took her to the place where the ceremony was going to take place. There was going to be a covenant of faithfulness where the bride's father made an arrangement and said, here's the commitment. You're going to have to pay so much uh, to take her as a wife. What he did was take this mohar, and that was going to be uh, something that would substitute uh, for her loss of usefulness as a hand in the fields, as well as if she was divorced or widowed by the man, then she had something to fall back on at that time to take care of her. Uh, I'm not going to go through the, all the rest of this, but here is now where we want to close our, our time in looking at um, the challenges in the Slavic world. So if we look at the divine principles over on the left, and we've got a scriptural reference that I'm going to be giving to you, then we want to compare to what's going on in the Slavic world. And so when we think about the principle of a divine origin, we go back to Genesis 2, 23 and 24, where God is the one who is arranging the marriage between Adam and Eve. And then if we go to Matthew 19, he's basically saying all marriages, anyone who gets married 
has been divinely, sovereignly chosen uh, for each other. But in the Slavic culture, it's la- largely ignored. And, and in fact, when I've chatted with men over there, pastors over there, it's largely, and observe this myself, this is a product of, uh, social, uh, of Soviet socialism, uh, where marriage was not, um, it, it just wasn't, it was an option. It wasn't something that was required. In fact, let me give you an illustration because um, <laughs> this is from one of the men that I work with over there. He says, when the Soviet government, the, the Soviet government did not necessarily require formal marriage. My grandmother was not officially married to my grandfather. They were considered a normal family and all kids were legit. But when World War II started and my grandfather went to the war zone, at a certain point he found another woman, and since he was not officially married, he married the other woman and left my grandmother with three little children. It's an amazing concept in there. But he'd had no concept of an divinely arranged relationship at that point. And I think that what we see here, uh, that this divine origin and relationship in the Slavic world being ignored, I think we can safely say that we in our society, in our American culture, echo the same kind of sediment for different reasons uh, than uh, the Soviet or the, uh, uh, the Slavic culture. Um, when we look at the principle of design, marriage being designed for permanence, and we see that in Matthew 19, 4 through 6, um, we see it's more conditional in the Slavic culture, not being treated satisfactorily by a mother-in-law in Belarus. In fact, uh, he goes on to say that his own mother uh, was married and lived with her husband for a couple of months. And since her mother-in-law was not treating her right, she came back to her mother's home and never went back to her husband. And the husband never came and tried to live with, uh, with her. Later, when my mom was 36, she just wanted a child. And I came to be of a man my mom had no intention of living with as a family. In other words, she just used that man in order to uh, get pregnant and have a son. And then he left and went back to his wife. And she was left to raise this child alone. Um, there's a parallel here in the United States, don't you think? You go into... Um, many poorer sections of town. And uh, we have people who are uh, just enjoying the relationship, but moving on when they want to. And the poor woman is left with uh, any children that come as a result of that. Uh, We can see the principle of male leadership from Genesis 2, 7, 18, and 22. But in the Slavic culture, uh, it seems to be a female domination. And that seems to be a practical uh, result because when the man leaves, he leaves her all alone and she's left with the responsibility. But you know what? In the American culture, we see the same thing, don't we? We see men abandoning their families, leaving the the wife with the responsibility of raising the children. So really, there's not much difference between what's going on in the Slavic culture and the American culture. Uh, (coughs) When we look at (coughs) complementarianism as a principle seen in Genesis 2, 20 through 23, we find when we look at the Slavic culture that egalitarian is the best that is done. And you know what? I think um, we see the same thing here in the United States. It's an egalitarian thought that dominates our culture, whether uh, it's in the non-believing relationships or in many times the believing relationships going on right now. In fact, one of the things when I ask, you know, what expectations are there when you look for a spouse? One of the things that a woman is looking for is somebody who is going to acquiesce to his, uh, to her desires. 
And so you're really designing a relationship that is designed to be weak and not to be male-led or dominated. And with the advent of feminism here in the United States, and I've had the, I guess, uh, not a good privilege of watching over my 47 years of marriage when feminism was introduced in the 1960s, we find that men are more eager to acquiesce to whatever the female wants just so that he can have the female. And then when he gets tired, boom, he's out of there, he's gone. And so egalitarian is what rules a relationship. We can see, I think, the dangers now when we don't have a biblical model in there. And so when we look at what's going on, the principles that are taking place on the left side, these are the principles that we need to be emphasizing when we're talking with those in premarital counseling or those whose marriages are in crisis. This idea of leaving and cleaving that is introduced in Genesis 2.24, well, over in the Slavic culture, they have trouble letting go with their parents, uh, letting the children go. And so they want the kids to either live with them in the house or live in the same area with them. And then finally, uh, here's one that we don't really see in Genesis at all. It really is an idea that comes from 1 Corinthians 10.31 and Colossians 3.1-4, through 4, and that is having a God-centered relationship. He's the one that you're trying to please and glorify. I think when we look at what we try and promote in our marriages today, we try and uh, promote working with each other, but we don't emphasize enough the fact that if you're going to live with somebody, you need to be honoring him in the way that you treat each other. And so get them to uh, memorize and to practice 1 Corinthians 10.31 so that when they're looking at each other, uh, they're doing whatever they're going to do to the glory of God. But here's some of the criteria that came from talking to several different Slavic pastors about uh, what to look for. Is there going to be a God-centered relationship or not? And they say, well, no, we're looking for somebody who is a non-drinker, who has got a good, if you're a Christian, a good dynasty, that is coming from the right pedigree, coming from a pastoral uh, family. Somebody who is a good handyman, he's a good provider, he even has cooking skills because you need to reduce the stress on the wife by relieving her of the cooking skills, and you, he needs to be a very good gift giver. Can you see something in common with those requirements that are being uh, lodged in the Slavic culture? It's all pointed toward pleasing the wife and making her and elevating her in the family and putting her above the husband or the man in the relationship instead of the woman coming alongside to help the man with the difficult duties that he has. Well, uh, I've run out of time, and in fact, I've gone over time. Uh, but um, you can stay and ask any questions that you want. But I also have something that's a free giveaway from uh, Grace to You Ministries in California. Uh, this is John MacArthur's ministry. It's a pamphlet on mutual submission in marriage. And uh, I've, I've just came across this a month ago. It was sent to me, and I read through, and I thought, man, I've, I haven't found a good description of what a good marriage should look like uh, in any other literature. And so I asked permission to bring and give you uh, a free copy of this. And uh, uh, this conference here was eager to say yes to allow me to distribute to it to you. So if you'd like one, I've got some up on the front row. Come up and uh, grab one. And if you have any questions, then uh, feel free to come up and ask me. Good. Yeah. Thanks for coming. Thanks for listening to this session from the 2023 Shepherds 360 Church Leaders Conference. This material is copyrighted and may not be altered or sold. 
For information, please visit shepherds360.org.